I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 27 of Caropop. Our guest this week is Terry Chambers, the man who provided the motor behind XTC until the band quit touring. He was the drummer on XTC's first five albums as this band from Swindon, England evolved from a skittish, quirky new wave outfit to a showcase for Andy Partridge's and Colin Moulding's increasingly tuneful and sophisticated songwriting. He's the one driving the manic beat of such early XTC singles as Science Friction, This Is Pop, and Statue of Liberty, as well as the start-stop rhythms of Neon Shuffle, one of Partridge's many would-be dance tunes. The band took a major evolutionary leap on his third album, 1979's Drums and Wires. Guitarist Dave Gregory, who starred in Carol Pop episode 15, replaced keyboardist Barry Andrews, Partridge's and Moulding's songs got stronger, and Steve Lillywhite offered sharp, punchy production in which Chambers' drumming burst from the speakers. His thundering drums kick off the album and the band's breakthrough single, Moulding's Making Plans for Nigel, as Chambers inverts what he plays on the floor tom and hi-hat. Black Sea from 1980 was the sound of a band clicking on all cylinders, with Chambers a beast on No Language in Our Lungs and Paper and Iron. He also finesses the shifting time signatures of Burning with Optimism's Flame. And whips up a sonic storm from the climactic travels in Neolon. There's also a healthy serving of the band's beloved Pea Soup, Pea Soup beat on Generals and Majors. XTC added textures and ambition to 1982's English Settlement. Chambers supplies memorable fills to Partridge's greatest song to date, Senses Working Overtime, and plays around the world rhythms on It's Nearly Africa and Melt the Guns. The latter of those is not his favorite. The band set out to tour this album, but just before a show in Los Angeles, Partridge informed his bandmates that he couldn't go on. The tour and XTC's dates as a live band were over, and this cancellation put the band members behind a financial eight ball that you may find shocking when Chambers discusses it. Chambers had enjoyed studio work, but says he lived for touring. So when XTC reassembled with a new producer, Steve Nye, to record its next album, Mummer, Chambers was not in the best frame of mind. He recorded two songs that wound up on the album, and while working on another one, he walked. He left not only the band, but also the country, moving to Australia with his wife. There he stayed for more than 30 years, playing briefly with another band before retreating from the music industry altogether. Yet in 2016, he was back in Swindon, and soon he and Colin Moulding were recording an EP of Moulding songs under the banner TC and I. They played six shows in Swindon in late 2018, and then Moulding pulled the plug on the project. Chambers responded by planning his own tour, teaming up with TC and I guitarist and singer Steve Hilling to form the band EXTC. Chambers says Partridge not only gave his blessing, but helped name the band. Molding may not have been so thrilled. This EXTC is currently wrapping up a North American tour, showcasing not only XTC songs on which Chambers originally played, but also later ones such as Earn Enough For Us, The Mayor of Simpleton, and King For A Day. So now you can hear his imprint on those songs. I spoke with Chambers at his hotel before EXTC's show last week at City Winery Chicago. We set up just off the lobby so you can hear some rainy day bustle in the background, but the main attraction is Terry Chambers. He is good humored, unpretentious, and revealing in his telling of what it was like to be in and then out of XTC. 
Does he feel like Partridge's breakdown might have been handled differently now? What actually prompted his leaving the band? Did he seek out or even hear XTC songs afterward? What was he doing during his three decades away from music? And now that all four key XTC members are living in Swindon once again, who is the biggest obstacle to an XTC reunion? As Chambers showed on stage, he still has the feel and power to play those XTC songs. Please enjoy Terry Chambers on Carol Pop. So the way you learned playing drums and whoever it was that you sort of idolized from those drummers back then, whether it was John Bonham or whoever else, then you're, then you're in XTC and the versions of it before that. Were you playing in a style that you had kind of learned or planned to play, or did you have to sort of play in a different style because it was sort of punk and everything was very sort of, you know, fast and, you know, herky-jerky and that sort of thing? It wasn't a particular style that... Um I'd learned and grew up with. I think it sort of lent itself really to um, the times, which was 77. Um, Andy was, certainly was riding in that style because in order to get gigs at the time, those were the type of bands that uh, the pubs and clubs in, in, in England were, were sort of booking, especially in London. And um, you sort of felt that um, in order to get those gigs, you were obliged to play that type of music. So I think uh, all of us adapted our personal styles to the times. So we did change slightly. So XTC when you started versus XTC by the time you left, did it feel like two different bands? Um, I guess in a sense, yeah. Uh, the, the songwriting certainly had progressed. Um, as you mentioned earlier, Mark, um, on the third album, um, there was uh, commercial success uh, in, in, in a single form, uh, making plans for Nigel in particular. So, I mean, and, and Virgin Records were desperate for that. I mean, we were actually on the edge at that point because we'd re recorded two albums uh, without any single success. And when it came to the third one, it was like, um, you know, they were sort of like looking at us thinking, you know, we want to hit single out of this, otherwise we might as well be considered ripping up this contract, which was a six album contract. So the pressure was really on at that point. And at that point, that's where Barry Andrews left the band, not because of that, because we were unaware of it at the time, but decided that um, in order to get a better outlet for his own material, he sort of decided he wanted to leave the band. Enter Dave Gregory. Right. So what was it? What was do you think the bigger change in the band at that time? Because it seems like there were two. One was Dave Gregory joined. So you have like a really complimentary guitar player who also can play all these leads and stuff where all Andy's doing his, you know, kind of scratchy rhythm stuff. And then you also have Steve Lillywhite coming in as a producer. Um, so like, is it sort of the combination of those two? Like which made the bigger impact, you think? Well, absolutely. I think... Uh well, in fairness, probably Dave. I mean, he sort of stabilized the thing. Um, he was the only uh, reader um, amongst us, and he stabilized the situation and started um, softening the thing a little bit, I guess, uh, and making it a little bit more sort of acceptable to the ear. As you say, you know, the itchy, scratchy type of thing there was mellowed out. And uh, once again, I think... Um, with the help of Steve Liddywhite and Hugh Padgham, you know, there was three new elements into the equation which uh, drastically sort of changed our sound and um, 
you know, we, we achieved some commercial success as a result of that. Plus, obviously, the songwriting had, had improved. Right. Do you think that uh, Andy was sort of miffed or got his competitive spirit up when he's the main songwriter and leader of the band, and then Colin, who sort of came into songwriting later, all of a sudden is writing the hits? Yeah, I think um, that uh, came as a little bit of a shock to him. Um, but then again... Um, you know, it was a band and, um, you know, you sort of got to play to your strengths. So, um, yeah, I don't think it sat particularly well with Andy, no. Dave Gregory was telling me about uh, making plans for Nigel and, and the decision to experiment with sort of mixing up, like where you play the, the hi-hat part on the, you know, snare, the drums and the other, like, like sort of reversing what you would normally play on which drum. That's right, because if you actually play that pattern in the normal fashion, what I'm playing on the right hand, if you play that on the hi-hat, um, it would sound pretty, it would say, do, do, da, do, 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 da, right? Right. But because you change that around and you're actually playing that pattern on the floor tom and you're playing the hi-hat with the left hand, which you would normally be playing the other way around, it sounds very complicated, but all you're doing is actually sort of like just going like that. Right. And it's just a different approach. Well, you can't see what I'm doing exactly, but I'm just you're switching hands. Just switching arms from one side to the other. Um, that's about as simple as I can make it. Um, once again, you've still got to play the thing, I guess, but um, really it was just a simple pattern just uh, looked at differently. Right. And, were you, and was that Andy's suggestion that you play it that way? And was it something that you originally like, hey, that's a great idea, or did you think, what? Well, it was a, it was a combination of things. Andy was listening to Devo at the time, and he really liked the way they approached their drums. Um... Uh, he also liked a band called Can as well, oh, a German yeah, yeah. outfit. So if you look at those two bands and listen to that, it was certainly a move away from the punk thing as as such. It was sort of like going off in a different outfit. Not that Can were punk, don't get me wrong, but I'm, I'm talking about the electronic side of things and a similarity, the Kraftwerk thing, Can, Devo, that type of thing. Um, and he was very interested in that. I mean, he didn't want to turn us into that band, but it's, it's just a question of... Um, looking at, I mean, the way they approached Satisfaction, a Rolling Stones song, right. for example, they just took another turn on it, and Andy really liked that. So um, there's a fair amount of credit got, got to go to that band there for for the way that turned out, I guess. And um, we were happy, Colin and I and Dave, uh, you know, to explore these possibilities. And then in the end, we said, yeah, actually, that sounds okay. So really, it was sort of an experimental to a certain extent, but wanting to make uh, things a little bit more interesting rather than just doing the run-of-the-mill, four-on-the-floor type thing and, uh, and, and, and that sort of type of approach. In general, how are you coming up with your parts? Would, the, would Andy or Colin play their songs and you just sort of play along and find yeah. it? Or did, or did Andy say, I want you to play this particular beat? Basically, when they come up with a song, they would come up with a song and it would just be played on acoustic guitar or a guitar and just sing the thing and strum the chords through. They'd, the rest of the band would find out what key the thing was in. And I would always start these things the same, just keeping standard time, which would be hi-hat, snare and bass drum. And it would all just get the feel of the thing. And then the, the, the song would develop depending on what the subject matter was. 
you know, if it was, you know, if they had an industrial feel about it or if it was a love song, heaven forbid, um, you know, or it was about buildings or something like that. We tried, I tried to approach it and we all did say, look, you know, how can we make this sort of feel as if, you know, the, the drums actually fit the lyrics of the song? And I think we sort of tried to work on that a little bit. Um, as you say, Paper and Iron and um, those type of songs, um, you know, I think, we try to imply that um, it had some sort of relevance with the lyrics to the song. Right. If Paper and Iron, you're walloping those drums. I mean, that's a really fierce Yeah, that's a song that song. we're not playing on this particular tour, but um, the guys have mentioned it. And um, as I say, it's been difficult searching out what to play um, because there's a, an enormous amount of material there and what's possible to play because later on in the... Um, uh, XTC songwriting and recording uh, career they didn't have to worry about re replicating this in a live situation so they th basically threw the kitchen sink at some of these things as um, listeners would probably well know um, in the EXTC uh, band that I've put together it's more of a rock band and what we're doing is not trying to replicate this stuff but do a air version of this thing with four musicians I mean it's, it wouldn't make sense for us to go out financial sense anyway to go out with perhaps a, a 10 piece band or a 15 piece band there with a brass section in order to do these things um, absolute justice uh, from a point of view of replicating the album so we're sort of we're cutting to the quick a little bit with this but uh, it's up to the people that uh, come along to see this and make up their own mind as to whether we're making a fist of it or not <laughs> well when you were in XTC it was a four piece band so it makes perfect sense for you to be touring with EXTC as a four piece band as well um, I mean it's interesting that you're, you're doing this Nick Mason is touring uh, his Saucerful of Secrets band, which is all it's Pink Floyd stuff before Dark Side of the Moon. Um, I mean, did you consider just sort of doing like I'm just going to do the era of XTC until I was on it and just sort of skip everything after that that you weren't on? No, I don't think that was a thing. I mean, uh, Steve Tilling and I got involved with uh, Colin Molden. We did this TC and I project, right? Which, uh, originally, Colin was doing this solo. Uh, record, and then when I went to England there because my brother's eldest daughter was getting married, and I was invited over for the wedding, and I bumped into the guys during that period of time. Collins told me what he was doing. He said, "Look, would you be interested in perhaps playing on this?" And I, I hadn't played for some time, and I thought, you know, I was going through a bit of a marital problem as well at the time, and I thought perhaps this would be good therapy for me. So. Um, I said, you know, I said, I would be. I said, if I'm capable of doing this, let's give it a go. And that's what we did. And I ended up playing a couple of songs on an EP with Colin. And we sort of collaborated on the thing in as much that we sort of shared the name rather than it being his solo thing. And um, we released that. Um, and then he, to my surprise, suggested that... Um, would we put a band together and, and see what these things sounded like in a live situation? Which surprised me. Um, and he wanted to basically play some of the songs that he'd recorded after we finished the live, playing live. He wanted to hear what they sounded like live. So we put a set together, predominantly all his songs, and we just played Statue of Liberty, one of Andy's songs, to just make sure that there was no ill feeling about it. But Colin really wanted to hear his songs in the live situation, and that's what we did. Right. After he decided that... Uh, he didn't want to play live 
anymore. He, we only played about six gigs, which was very disappointing for, to Steve and I, uh, because we put a lot of work into it. Um, we decided to continue on with this and say, look, I think we should put, uh, see if we can put a band together ourselves and not only do Colin songs, but play a lot of Andy's songs as well. So right. we ended up balancing the thing out about 50-50. So that's where we're at. So so when Colin ended the TC and I thing, were you surprised? Because did you think you were going to maybe bring that over here? Or? Well, I was surprised. I knew he didn't want to get back on the, the, the extensive touring thing there, but I, th I thought that, the, you know, we would keep the thing together there and do some shows, um, you know, periodically. Um, so I was very disappointed that that didn't continue on, yeah. So now both of them, Colin and Andy, both told you, hey, guess what? We're not touring anymore. So yeah. you've had it. Uh, yeah. you, you went through that twice. Yeah, that's right. But this time you you actually picked up and you said, well, I'm just going to do this. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, the difficulty being, Mark, that uh, Steve and I were committed to this thing all the way. It was getting two other like minded musicians that could spend the time interested in playing the music and all the other difficulties about putting a band together um, you know because it's a bit of a stretch doing these american things here and you have to have to have a little bit of backbone in order to do it right so not only be a, a good musician and, and want to do these things and it took us a f two years basically i think to to get the band together that we've ended up with which involves steve hampton on guitar and matt hughes on bass and those guys are are sound did you have to get uh andy's and colin's blessing to do this or not really we i, I was a, a little bit disgruntled that um colin decided to just sort of drop this and and really um that made me even more determined in a sense right and i thought you know what i'm not going to stop with that and i thought tc I, without i yeah so um there was a little bit of to and fro as to what we would be called and andy said well you know if you're gonna gonna, gonna go out and you're gonna put my songs in there because i said to him i said look i want to go out there and 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 play these things especially sort of your songs as well that people haven't heard for 40 years um and he and he, he he said, well, you know, I couldn't be happier. And you can't call it really anything other than XTC. You know, being at my initials being TC right. and the EX being sort of. So that's why there's a little bit of a gap. So people can assimilate with the original band, but also if you look at it, it's XTC. Yeah. Type of thing. So TC. it's a little bit tangled, but. Uh, that was his idea, and I thought, well, if, if he suggested that, who am I to argue about that? So I, I thought that was probably a, a good idea in connecting the whole thing together. I don't think Colin was particularly happy with it, or Dave, uh, because it was a little bit too close. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, they're going to get some royalties out of it, or Colin will anyway, so perhaps that'll ease the burden. <laughs> when was the last time you had actually sort of done a rock tour before this. I played in Australia there sometime after I finished with XTC and that was barely, that was a, a pretty much a mercenary thing there just to keep food on the table really. I played that for 18 months, two years in Australia with a band called Dragon. I did an album with them. In actual fact, I only played on, they'd already started recording that thing. I only played on about four songs on the album, but I did a full um, live album with them to record at the Sydney Entertainment Centre in Australia. Um, but once again, I was a bit of a hired gun and I was always used to sort of being in a band with mates. Right. Um, you know, and I was always the odd man out because they were a, a band from New Zealand and had been together for about 10 years. 
So there was all these in-jokes and all this sort of stuff, and I had no idea what the hell they were talking about half the time. But, um, yeah, so that was that side of it. How long had it been, though, since you were really sort of in drumming shape to do this kind of a tour when you started up again recently? Well, it was probably 30 years, probably. (laughs) That's a while. I just sort of went into the rock and roll wilderness. And... um, well, thankfully, Colin put this thing together and it gave me a reason to um, get back into it. And um, yeah, I'm su- nobody's more surprised than me that this is actually taking place. Does it feel just the same as it did to you when you were playing? Yeah, this stuff I think earlier? I'm playing better, to be quite honest, because I was young, enthusiastic, and it was more of a visual thing back in the day where you had to be. Actually, it, it seemed to me at the time that it was more important to sort of like look as if you knew what you were doing and look as if you were sort of, sort of a good player rather than actually physically being one. Um, now, I'm a bit more relaxed about my playing. And, uh, yeah, I think I'm, I've got a slightly better technique now, which came, comes with either age or, um, or, or experience, I guess. How was your playing different by the time you finished with XTC from when you started? Were there any particular things you were doing more later on or less, like you were playing toms more or you were playing certain, playing the drum kit in a certain way that you hadn't been playing it before? Yeah, good question. Um, Not sure how to answer that, really. Um, Once again, I think it's sort of, the the, the songs themselves uh, tended to dictate what needed to be played on them, I think, if that answers that question. Right. (laughs) Yeah, when I listen to like Black Sea, it seems like it's a band that is totally like is clicking on all cylinders. Like you guys are so tight on that that album, and it's something like Burning with Optimism's Flame. I mean, there are like a lot of you know time signature things that are pretty tricky in there, but you sound totally in sync. Did that feel like sort of a peak to you, and just in terms of the the tightness of the band? Yeah, I mean that was um, because of the extensive touring we did. You know, I mean, we were touring probably more, though, arguably more than any other band at that particular point in time. I mean, I think Dave Gregory uh, would probably be the guy to answer about um, the amount of gigs that we were doing. I mean, for instance, uh, just before I came away, my old uh, drum roadie said to me that when we, he last played the United States uh, before the tour that finished it all i think we did 50 gigs in 65 days and wow. 10 of those days were travel days so there was actually physically only two days off at that period of time so that gives you a bit of an indication of um the the sort of touring schedule that we had and then you would finish there go back to it, the uk maybe finish for a week or something like that and then go out for another month and then there was europe and then we go to japan then australia so for about five years this band just worked solidly and when you weren't doing that you were expected to write material and then record the material and then get back on the wagon again and as regards touring so for five years i mean that was the point where Andy sort of started to break down. He was overworked, and if he'd had more sympathetic management, you know, they just flogged the horse to death, basically. Right. And so, you know, he couldn't see any other way out because, you know, if we'd have been a bit older, I suppose, a bit more experienced, and the management team would have been a bit more compassionate, because have sat there and said, listen, we need a bit of a rest from all this because this guy's just, he's beat.
song like Travels of Neolon, um, it's this furious looping, like, like, like looped sound, but there's no like actual yeah. looping involved. Like well, you're playing through the whole thing, right? Well, apparently I did that in one take. So Dave Gregory tells me, I mean, wow. he's the man to ask as, you as you've done that, you know, because everyone uh, go listen to the I, Dave Gregory I just basically episode sort of did what, what, what was required. And I thought, well, that's been done now. So, and it was one of those songs that, um, I don't think lend, lend itself to, to the live situation too much because I think, you know, it was a magic moment at the time and it was a lot of things were thrown out that and I think to replicate that um, night after night in a live situation would have been a bit of a tall order to be quite honest yeah you mentioned can I could hear the can influence on a song yeah, like that where it's like very repetitive and droney and exactly and aggressive and when Andy sort of came up with the idea I mean he, he would sort of suggest that I want something in this uh, caveman-like fashion, you know. So, I don't know, to me, it just naturally lent itself towards that type of thing, uh, just sort of a very repetitive thing. And I think we just sort of nearly made that up, you know, just in a jam, really. Do you have memory of you know, just various songs, you know, you hearing them or starting to play with them where you thought, wow, this is great. This is a really great song. Yeah, I, I did think that about Senses Working Overtime, actually. That was one of the songs of all the ones that we did. I thought... This is something. There's something special about this, because of the changes in it. I thought this is actually a well-crafted song, and I think if people don't like this, I don't know what else to offer. Right. You know. I mean, I just had, had a real gut feeling about that song. Yeah, it's a great one, and you've got wonderful fills in that one too. Yeah. Uh, once again, um, I just think it was one of those things that just sort of, especially that that, that, that sort of like um, sort of halftime fill at the end that people mention. I think that was just one of those situations where we recorded it several times in order to get it right in the studio. And I think at the end of it, that was just a spur of the moment thing. So you're touring on English Settlement and in English Settlement also, like as, as much as, you know, there's sort of this reputation of, oh, you know, Terry Chambers, this hard hitting bashing drummer. I mean, there's a lot of really complex yeah. drumming going on on English Settlement. Like yeah. I, I feel like the band's palette really sort of expanded on that, you know, whether it's, you know, stuff that's blatantly, you know, different, like, you know, Melt the Guns or It's yeah. Nearly Africa or just even just like run away. I mean, a lot of this stuff, it just sort of feels like it's 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 broadened, you know, what the rhythmically you're doing in the band. Yeah. Um, in actual fact, I think it's a bit of a misconception that I'm a hard-hitting drummer. I think that's... People get that idea because of the way the drums are actually recorded. It sounds like some sort of animal is hitting these <laughs> things at times, you know, in, in some of the it's more a tremendous drum sound. Neanderthal style of drumming. But it's the way the thing was recorded. I mean, you know, as you know, with trigger, not that we use triggers, but with triggers and stuff, you can make things sound like anything they like. But I'm not sort of like deliberately going out there thrashing these things to pieces. It's just sort of like a big ambient sound that Hugh and Steve Lillywhite got. Right. That people tend to think, wow, he must be bashing the bejesus out of this this drum kit in order to get that. But in actual fact, it's all aided by the microphones. So, and then you're touring on English Settlement and, and Andy just has his breakdown and says, we're going to stop. Yeah. Like how... How devastating was that for the rest of the band at that point? And well, I mean, we did the one gig in San Diego on that tour, um, and the the audience was in the the next night we were playing Los Angeles, and the audience were were in the in the auditorium, you know. And it was when we sort of got asked to come down to the lobby to play the gig that the news broke that um, he wasn't coming out of his room and he he just couldn't cope with it. <sighs> I don't know, how do you? How do you take that? 
I, I don't know. You just you just can't believe what you're listening to. You know, it's like you've just heard some serious bad news about a family member. I can't describe it as anything more than that. Really, I mean, the wind's just totally out of your sails. It's I don't know. It's like you've just heard a, of a complete disaster somewhere. You know, it's, it's just. You just feel as if you're helpless. Well, it's interesting. Like that was 40 years ago, which I yeah. find hard to believe. But but there's a sense that, or hope at least, that by now there's sort of more sensitivity to people going through, you know, mental health struggles and you know anxiety and you know whatever whatever it was that was going on there. Yeah. Um, do you feel like at that time everyone was sort of prepared to sort of deal with that sort of thing, or was there sort Absolutely of Absolutely not. I um, I never knew Andy was on Valium at all. Um, and I didn't know about sort of mental health issues. I just thought that uh, he was a bit tired, um, you know, because we were younger guys then. And as you say, I don't think mental health people considered it back then. It was just sort of like, you know, pull your sleeves up, you know, have a, you know, have a rest, have a sleep get over it type of thing you know people I, I was totally unaware that, that there was an illness were you, at the time were you getting more joy in XTC out of performing live or out of making the records always live I mean that's that's the way I sort of began to me uh, it was um, a privilege to go and record albums and one thing or another I never ever sort of when I started out I never ever thought that would ever happen um and uh, probably I was ill prepared for it, to be honest, um, because then you had to sort of, I mean, the beauty of sort of playing live is if you make mistakes, suddenly it's there and it's gone and you get on with it. I mean, that's being human, you know. But when you're in a studio there and a, a producer's watching every move you make, and we don't never ever record anything to a click track. We did a bit of a tape thing on Melt the Guns, I think it was one thing. But uh, that was never ever to be duplicated live anyway. But other than that, uh, the stuff was always done um, just as is. And you just you were under the pressure there to sort of keep your timing nice and consistent, nice and steady, keep your volumes reasonably well so you didn't have to cause the engineer to sort of like suddenly bring this down and push that up, you know. You know, that's all sort of part of your playing sort of style and technique. Uh, and, and I suddenly become well aware of, of, of playing. You had to play this thing like an instrument, for heaven's sake, right. you know, um, because otherwise these guys would say, well, you know, because they'd all work with, with decent drummers. And um, suddenly you, you, you were under a bit of pressure there to make sure that whatever you put down, eventually that was going to be there forever. So it's like, if, if you've got to live with this thing, so you want to make sure it's as good as what you can get. So that side of it wasn't enjoyable for me. I just like the spontaneity of, of just sort of going out and playing live and thinking, well, it's a warts and all situation there and you have your good nights and your bad nights. But as long as at the end of the day, everybody in the crowd seemed to be having a good time, then it's, it's a moment in time. So how did you process the end of XTC as a touring band? Did you think at that point, this is going to be it for me because I'm not going to want to be in a band that doesn't tour? Pretty much so, yeah. I couldn't understand the logic of recording records and not going out in the, and promoting them in the best sense, which traditionally back in those days was expected of you from the record companies. To, if they gave you the privilege of recording this stuff, who was going to go out and advertise it? 
if you weren't going to go out on the road. And I thought, it's not right to expect somebody else to go out and do that. You need to go out there and do it. Because while you're on tour doing that stuff, inevitably there was interviews for radio stations and magazines and uh, newspapers and people would report on the on the gigs as well so you know to take that aside of the sales of it I mean, back in the day, there was no such thing as merchandise, really. You might have had a program. That was about it. I'm sure you can remember right. that. Yeah, yeah. Now, merch is a big thing as you well. You get a T-shirt, but it wasn't that expensive anyway. Yeah, so. that's right. Yeah, that might be about the extent of sense of it. So, from a point of view of actually advertising this record that you sort of spent so much time doing, it, it was a no-brainer for me to think that, you, what, you're not going to go out and tour this thing? I couldn't understand it. The record co company couldn't understand it. The management uh, company couldn't understand it. You know, yeah, he thought he was going to sell these records, just sort of make these records, sit at home and get somebody else to do it. I mean, is there a financial end of that, too? Because you're not getting publishing for it. You're just getting recordings. And so you would you would probably I assume you would make up a chunk of your income playing well, live also. as a result of the cancelled American tour and um, all this type of thing, it took me 18 years to pay back from my Royalties, which were only mechanical royalties at that time, 18 years to pay my quarter of the debt. And I had, and it was nothing to do with me about canceling it. So 18 years of the, of, to the debt of, you know, for the tour, because you guys canceled for the, the tour, tour and you yeah. guys it took 18 years for you to pay your part for of me, it. For me, yeah. Wow. So that's a pretty devastating well, decision. Well, yeah, when, it, when it wasn't your fault. Right. So, um, you know. And then you go back. You can understand why people get. I don't hold no grudge over it. I, I, I understand now that it was an illness and all that. Things could have been dealt with a lot better once I said with with better and more sensitive management. But at the time there, when you sort of get that, and it wasn't until then. Um, admittedly, they had problems with with management after that. I think they went on strike for about five years uh, to get out of their deal, lousy deal with Virgin Records. That was another bad thing. They signed up for a second, or they, I say they, we, I, signed up with Virgin Records for a six album deal, all at four percent. If we'd have had decent management, they said, listen, let's sign for two albums at this, and if. Uh, if, if the things go reasonably well, it puts us in a better position to renegotiate a better deal. Right. That didn't happen. Yeah. So, so, you know. So, and then, so then eventually you go back into the studio. You don't have Hugh Padgham there anymore. Uh, you have, you know, Andy and Colin with their new songs. And you have this sort of still kind of aftermath of canceling all this tour. So what's your state of mind when you go in for those you know, recording sessions and rehearsals. Not good. Not knowing that, um, you know, I didn't think that the songs were good enough to follow in English settlement. That was my opinion, you know. Um, I, I had a conversation with Andy about it, and he, and he told me, he rang me and said, listen, if that's the way you feel about it, I'll scrap the lot and start again. And I said to him, I said, no, Andy, I said, this is where you're at and you want these things recorded now. Because he always wanted to record everything that he did all the time. That's why there was so much music on the English settlement. I think that should have been a single record. Which it was in the US, although I don't know that yeah. they chose I the mean, right songs. I mean, that caused some grief too, because he said he wanted to record this stuff and get it all out, because next year I'll have some more stuff. You know what I mean? He was very productive, and he said, I don't want to sort of save any of this stuff for next year, because it'd be last year's model. Right. You know, done and dusted, so he wanted to record it all and get it out. You know? I'm not quite sure whether that was commercially a right thing to do or not. And, and the album could have been a lot stronger, I think, had it been a single album. Because there's a, a few things on English Settlement, I think, are 
B grade at best. All right, what do you take off of English Settlement? Well, Fly on the Wall is one of them. Is that on there? I'm pretty sure it's it on, is. Although I don't think it's on the uh, American one. So I think oh, they did well, take that Well, there you go. Off. Well, they've taken it off. There's a couple on there. I don't want to get too specific with it because I saw an interview personal. with you where you said you didn't like Melt the Guns. I didn't particularly like and it. And you no. didn't like English Roundabout. I didn't like that either, no. <laughs> but they made the record. So, and I think it would have been a stronger record without them. But um, there you go. Still a great record, though. Yeah, and and better than what you think Mummer was becoming. Yeah. I mean, it is a better record, better record than Mummer, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, it got to a point there. I played the two there, and as you say, the the non-touring thing came up. I thought thought there was a couple of songs there that were strong. Some of them there, I thought were just, I don't know, probably not up to it. I didn't want to be in a position where you sort of, it's, it's difficult, sort of like making each record better than the last and all that. But I think, well, perhaps we should have taken a little bit more time. Uh, between that English settlement and putting the mummer thing together uh, and making sure that the songs were better, in my opinion. Was switching producers to Steve Nye from Hugh Badgham, is that a problem also? Well, I didn't like it at all, you know. Um, they, I mean, one of the guys even left during, I forget who it was that left. Uh, yeah, I didn't think it was a good combination. I thought we had, not that... Not that um, you know, you continue on and on. I mean, Mutt Lang should have been... Actually, Mutt Lang should have been producing Drums and Wires had it not been for the fact that um, I think he was doing either ACDC's Black in Black or Def Leppard's Pyromania at that huh. particular point. He was unavailable. That was our first choice to try and get Mutt, Mutt to do it. For, for Drums and Wires? For Drums and Wires. Right. Although Steve Lillywhite, I mean, you guys had a great well, yeah, you know, we got collaboration with him I, on that, on that. I actually suggested Steve Lillywhite because I liked the Ultravox album. Right. And I said he was great. And Hugh Padgham only got involved by luck because he was the resident engineer. So it was just a chance thing that we had Hugh Padgham as the resident engineer. Steve Lillywhite was our, our producer of choice, you know, because Mutt was unavailable. And we recorded that thing in the stone room. So those combinations made that record room. Right. And then, then Steve Lillywhite was not there for English Settlement, so Hugh Padgham was the producer right. of that and then he also started making like these huge hit albums with like P the police and genesis his first hit single was making plans for nigel that he was involved in and then because of the success of um, the black sea thing as well and steve as you say wasn't available at that particular point in time um, virgin records gave us permission to co-produce it with hugh so it was sort of like a bit of a, a feather in air cap. So we, as a band, mainly a partridge, of course, but um, as a band, we sort of um, all had a few hands in on doing that with Hugh. And then once again, the mummer thing, they were back to this producer thing again, and arguably a producing team that uh, probably wasn't quite what was right for XTC. Because having said that, of course, we did singles with Martin Russian, uh, we did already receiving me with him. Right. Uh, that wasn't particularly successful, but it was a good recording session. Great uh, and uh, uh, producer that because he did the first Stranglers album, um, which we loved, or I certainly loved. Um, you know, and obviously we did the, the This Is Pop remake thing with Mutt Lang, and we also did the disastrous Wait Till Your Boat Goes Down with Phil Wayneman, who was a great producer, but he was a producer in the old-fashioned sense of, you know, if you can't get it right, I'll go in there and do it for you. Oh, great. You know, so it was sort of like he had a big stick. What was disastrous about that one? Well, it just did put me on edge because he was a drummer as well. And, okay. Uh, it was like, um, you know, he'd be in there sort of like looking at his watch. 
how long is it going to take you to do this stuff? You know, and I don't work under pressure particularly well and right. in that sense. So well, that wasn't very comfortable. And these things had to be done. Look, we've got um, 12 hours, guys, you know, start to finish. Let's crack on with this. And um, he was an old a producer from the... And his track record is excellent. I mean, he did the sensational Alex Harvey band, um, you know, Faith Healer stuff, and all manner of stuff, Phil Wayman, uh, all pop stuff and that. So, fantastic producer, but ruled with an iron fist. So, Mummer, you're on Beating of Hearts and Wonderland, which yeah. are the first two songs. Wonderland being the Colin song that has kind of a, you know, gentle kind of synthy thing going on. Were you on uh, Love on a Farm Boy's Wages or on any no. version of that? Or no, I think we got to a point there. I think that was sort of more or less the, the point where. I sort of finished with the band. We were doing a rehearsal there and I thought, I don't know where this is going. My head's not in the right space here. And I said, I don't think I want to do this anymore. And I was think that, that the was, song that you were doing at the I time you walked out? I think that was the song we were rehearsing at the time. I could be, once again, ask Dave Gregory. I'm sure his recollection of this is better than mine. But I'm pretty sure that might, may or may not, arguably, that is the song that's been named as the song. Right. But, um, yeah, that was it. But I was in a situation with um, my to be wife um, she was about to give birth and one thing or another so there was that consideration she was Australian there was that the non-playing live situation um, and I thought well I don't know what I'm going to do for money I was just in a bit of a state to be honest and um, I, I didn't think that I thought my my future w was elsewhere was it was it sort of like a george harrison see you around the clubs moment where you're in the rehearsal and you just sort of walked out or was there a final straw that that got you to there was there a blow up or was it just sort no, of like a, it, i'll see it, you around it was, i think i'll put the drumsticks down the, the story goes the symbols were still waving away as i walked out did you keep in touch with them after that or was it really like I'm, I'm off to Australia that's it I had a conversation with Andy afterwards and he said about scrapping these songs as I mentioned earlier and I said no Andy I said you know it wouldn't be right for me to sort of you know this is your work I said it's, it's, it's me that should go and then you and then you moved to Australia yeah so that's a real well, huge change of it's sort of like almost akin to driving joining some religious cult in a bizarre <laughs> desert somewhere which um, possibly possibly it was in my own sense for 30 years did you like living in Australia I loved it where in Australia were I you I was living in a place called Lake Macquarie which is just south of Newcastle New South Wales which is about two and a half hours drive north of Sydney okay yeah, on the coast. It was beautiful. Yeah, lovely. I had three kids there. My son is actually tour managing. First time I've seen him since he came over for six years. And he's tour managing this. That's Kai. The, yeah. that's Who's also a drummer. Yeah. Does he drum like you do? He drums far better than I do. <laughs> Um, I look forward to seeing him and meeting him also. So you're in Australia. You've, you've, you've removed yourself from this whole British rock scene and this band that you were in. Are you listening to their albums? when it, Like when Mummer came out, did you go pick it up and hear what no. it sounds like? Or were you no. just like, no, I'm No, I didn't. Done. I didn't. I didn't worry about it. I'd sort of just drawn a line under that, to be honest. I wasn't interested. I was asked 
after that, I, I did the, the Dragon thing in Australia there for, for 18 months, two years. But basically got a little bit disillusioned with the, um, the whole record business, to be quite honest. And after that, I was even approached by the band called The Divinals. I remember I that. Yeah, they asked me if I would be interested in playing with them. But once again, I said... I'm not in the right frame of mind to be doing this. Was flattered by the opportunity to play with those guys, uh, Chrissy Amplett and um, Mark McKechnie. Um, I didn't think I would was in the right frame of mind to sort of uh, make a good contribution in that in that sense. So I declined that offer, and I just sort of went into the rock and roll wilderness after that. Really. So what was it you were doing uh, when you were not playing drums? I was just doing manual work just laboring type work there just to sort of keep uh, food on the table just normal nine to five or seven till three or whatever the hours were out in australia there uh, just outdoor work really construction mainly so like working on houses buildings that type of thing yeah yeah i ended up uh, buying a concrete line pump actually and uh, pumping concrete <laughs> pumping concrete for about 16 years i guess wow and would you, you know, like have the radio on in the background? I mean, was it occasionally did you no, hear any machine, XTC songs? No, this machine go, took up too much noise. You couldn't listen to anything other than that. Wow. Just pumping it out. <laughs> Do you have memory uh, memories of like hearing XTC songs after that over the next, you know, couple decades? I never really listened to the radio at all. Um, if I did listen to any music, it would be back in the day. It would obviously be 12-inch um, vinyl. Uh, and later on... Um, collected CDs and um, I would play Sensational Alex Harvey Band, Thin Lizzy, Deep Purple, those type of things, right. Led Zeppelin and all the stuff that I loved as a, as, as a young chap growing up. So you're playing newer XTC songs on this tour, so at what point did you sort of go back and think, okay, I better listen to the stuff that they did after I left? Well, funnily enough, um, it was during the time I was with Colin because a lot of that stuff that we did, uh, you know, uh, Dave Maddox played, Pat Mastellotto played. Right, he was on Oranges and Lemons, uh, yeah, Dave Maddox was on None uh, Such. The Prairie Prince, um, Skylar Chuck Sabo, all these guys. Um, I've probably missed somebody. Pete Phipps as well, all great drummers. And, um, you know, big shoes to fill. And those guys sort of just went in there and, you know, did their magic. And then suddenly um, Colin said, well, you know, I'd like to hear these things. So I had to do my interpretation of this stuff. So um, I learned some of this stuff um, uh, doing the project with Colin. And I've, I've now moved that into um, the band that we're in because Steve was obviously, Steve Tilling was obviously familiar with that as well. So that's sort of half of the set. But then Steve and I had to sort of like uh, come to terms with some of Partridge's stuff. So, um, yeah, it was a bit of a challenge, and we, we decided to work on material that we thought was doable in a four-piece band, as opposed to, right. you know, and there's no keyboards in this either. Nobody ever mentioned the whole thing since we've been playing this stuff. You know, people saying, hey, this is great, you know, we're enjoying what's going on here. This is a rock band, and nobody said, but there's no keyboards in it. Nobody's mentioned that, so right. it makes me wonder, you know. Well, I won't, say, I won't say what it makes me wonder. <laughs> so when you listen to this stuff, was there some of it that you liked a lot and some of it that yeah, you didn't like so yeah, much? Yeah, there was some stuff, that, definitely. Uh, most of the stuff that we're playing there, I've, I've got um, great respect for as songwriting and as musicianship of the guys that played on us. As I said, they're all great drummers, those guys. 
you know. So what are the what are the um, sort of later XCC things that you particularly liked? Well, you know? like King for a Day, we're doing that. Right. Um, Another Colin song. Yeah. Um, what else are we doing? Uh, Mara Simpleton, we're doing that. Earn Enough, we're doing that. Uh, grass, we're doing. Uh, Sacrificial Bonfire. We're doing that. That's that's um, not yeah. a song I would have pulled out as a obvious live no, song. But Colin so and another I, Colin song, of yeah, course. Yeah, one of Colin's songs. Colin and I did that, and and I really like it. Yeah. Um, you know, and we put it in the middle of one of the sets. Grass is in the middle of one set, and Bonfire is in the middle of the other set. Um, and it just sort of... It, it's just a song in either set that just sort of sets a bit of a different atmosphere right. there, rather than the old thump, whack, this, that and the other. It's sort of the lights can come down a bit and there's a little bit more sensitivity about uh, that particular part of the set. Yeah, Skylarking as an album has that sort of pastoral, gentle yeah. pop, sort of 60s pop feel for a lot of it, which is, which is different as well. Um, any Dukes of Stratosphere? No, we don't do any of that. <laughs> Do you like that? Have you listened to um, it? To be honest, I've not really listened to it. I, I've I've heard bits and pieces, and it's a real '60s sort of um, psychedelic type of thing. Right. Which, um, I, I actually, funnily enough, um, I think um, we were at the uh, at the time. Andy was thinking about this Dukes of Stratosphere thing. Um, we were sort of arguing about what what to call ourselves in that, and. Um, I did. I think I did have a name because I was originally supposed to be in that, and in the end, obviously, I left. And Dave Gregory's brother Ian played right. on the drums on that, and John Leckie produced it. Who produced Go To? Well, I mean, it was right up John's alley because yeah. John's an old hippie from way back. If he doesn't mind me saying so, um, sure. Yeah, uh, we get on very well, John and I. And in actual fact, um, we met at the uh, This Is Pop documentary. Um, there was a um, a premiere of that thing there. We went to London to see it, and John was there, and Hugh Pageant was there as well. And um, I hadn't seen John for a long time, and he said to me, you sacked me from XTC. And I said, no, I didn't, John. It was, you know, it was, and he was only having a go, because um, he obviously didn't do the third record. He did the first two. Right. And uh, it got to a point there where Virgin Records basically made the call on that, said, listen, we think it's best to get a, have a, a change of direction because we haven't had a hit single off of this thing. So that was the reason for it. It was nothing to do with me saying, I don't want to work with John Leckie anymore. I like John Leckie. I love right. John Leckie. Yeah, he's done, he's done all right otherwise. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we're still in touch even now, John. He's wishing us all the best on this tour. We get on extremely well. We have a curry periodically. Nice. Yeah. So, so okay, so you're in Swindon now. Yeah. All four of you are living in Swindon. Yeah. Do any of you see each other? Um, I haven't seen Colin since we sort of um, finished the TCNI thing there. I haven't seen... I've seen Dave since. Dave came in at a jam with us. I asked Dave if he wanted to join this thing, mm. you know, early on the piece. He didn't want to get involved in it because he he, he felt that it was a, a poor man's version of XDC without Partridge. Right. He said, if Partridge was involved, I'd get involved. But we had a jam, Dave and the rest of the guys uh, or Steve Tilling anyway and we had a keyboard player who was temporarily in the band at the time during the transitional period when we were still looking for a guitar player Dave came down had a play and we went through some of the old stuff we had some good fun but he didn't want to commit to it so I asked him twice and he didn't want to get involved so that was that and Andy you talked to him? I talked to Andy uh, I talked to him um, well I emailed uh, when we were on the UK part of the tour there because um, I said to Andy, I said, just jokingly, I said, we're playing Liverpool 
uh, tonight, Andy. I said, can you recommend a good hotel? Because the last experience we had over there, we stayed in this shocking hotel that had nylon sheets and all of us slept on top of the bed. Oh, wow. You know, and it was... um, uh, there's a funny story because and when we went down to breakfast and all that we had this had to share this breakfast uh, it was a, a plate of um, bacon in the middle there and two slimy eggs um, to, to share between the three of us so Partridge can still remember this and uh, at the end of it he said it I remember this little freckle faced kid coming down to the table saying me ma'am wants some money now <laughs> that is a Liverpudlian accent um yeah, so he said, don't stay there, whatever you do. For God's sake, man, he said, don't stay at Casson's Hotel was the name of the place. And I said to him, I said, no, we've, we've, we've managed to have, uh, uh, acquire better accommodation than Casson's. So, yeah, we've still got a good se- sense of humour between us and we're still good friends. He didn't come see you guys play, though. No, he didn't. He was going to come to a rehearsal and uh, have a look at that and... But he spends a lot of time in a place called Rottingdean now, which is just uh, sort of Brighton. He's got another house down there, which is on the uh, southeast coast of England. And he stays, spends a lot of time down there now because his wife, uh, Jess, Erica, not Jessica, Erica, doesn't like Swindon. She hates Swindon and she's from New York. Right. So you can understand that, I mean. Do you think that he, he didn't see you because it would be too difficult for him or just it just didn't work out? Oh, I think he's a bit uncomfortable about doing it, I think. Um, just sort of being there and thinking that he might have to sort of talk to people. <laughs> mm. would you, would, have you ever suggested to him, hey, look, I could play drums on some of your songs that you haven't been releasing? No, that's that's for him to ask me. <laughs> Interesting. So do you think there's any chance that XTC, the four of you, ever play together? Well, as I said before um, if I've achieved nothing else with this project it's got them talking to each other whether it's favorably with this project or not I don't know but they're certainly talking to each other about this who do you think is most sort of preventing that from happening probably Colin why you'll have to ask him that Because I got that sense, and I don't. I, when I talked to Dave Gregory, also, I got the sense that there's something else. Not yeah. that I need to know all of your yeah. gossip or interpersonal yeah. relationships, but it seemed like there was something there that was uh, not yeah. smooth with everyone. I, I think I think that's that's the answer. I think. That's it for episode 27 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Terry Chambers for his memories, insights, and music. EXTC plays dates in Boston and Toronto, then the band tours England. For more on XTC, please listen to Carol Pop episode 15 with Dave Gregory. That's two of the four prime XTC members covered here. So Andy Partridge and Colin Molding, you're next. Thanks to web developer Marty Rosenbaum and special thanks to Lou Carlozo, who recorded this episode on location, as well as the Carol Pop theme. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake who's always making plans. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O and visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com for posts about music, movies, and food and also this Carol Pop podcast. Thanks. Thanks.